Hi friends, welcome to Almost Heretical. You know, one thing that's changed for us over the years is how we think about other religions. For most of my life, other religions have been dismissed as false or even evil, mostly because of a few key Bible verses that um, I think may have been misinterpreted. Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest and professor of religion, and she was one of the first Christian voices I heard suggesting that maybe God could be found in other religions as well. So we couldn't wait to connect with her, and we hope you gain as much from this conversation as we did. Okay, well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today. All of our listeners are are people who are wanting to approach Christianity and the Bible, often a, one, a faith that they grew up with um, from a new perspective. Most of our listeners at this point, I mean, it's a podcast called Almost Heretical, so obviously there's a little bit of edginess to it right from the beginning. So most most of our listeners are already open to the idea of other religions being valuable or even equal to Christianity and other ways of accessing God, but many of them don't don't feel like they have the tools to explain or defend that to evangelical friends or family mm-hmm. or even their own inner kind of fundamentalist voice. I mean, that's really my experience is that I, I always have in the back of my head, okay, but what about this? But what about this? Mm-hmm. Um, so our goal today is kind of to give people some of those tools to be able to have those conversations with um, Christian friends and family who hold more dogmatic beliefs maybe about other religions and and how to just kind of loosen our grip. Um, so so that's where we want to start today. And and maybe, I mean, I want to start off just by asking, when you go to your website, barbarabrowntaylor.com, it, you describe yourself as speaker, writer, and spiritual contrarian. Um, would you would you like to explain what you mean by spiritual contrarian? Sure. What a loving critic of my own tradition, mm-hmm. which is the only tradition I feel like I can be critical of. I'm mostly respectful of others, but it in my time as a preacher and a teacher, it has always seemed helpful to go in the direction opposite to the direction people have been taught to go because there's undiscovered treasure there and questions mm-hmm. people have been afraid to ask. And in my mind, a lot of activity of the Holy Spirit, who's always been in the business of turning over the furniture and messing with things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. And, and very, I guess, contrary is exactly the right word of what you said of to go always mm-hmm. in the opposite direction is a, mm-hmm. a way I've never heard that put before. Would you just give us a little bit of background of yourself and your faith heritage, how you grew up and how that plays into um, what your faith looks like today? Yeah, we only have about seven decades, so this could, you know, take us the rest (laughs) of the podcast. I'll make it quick. (laughs) Raised by intentionally unchurched parents, one a former Mm. Catholic, one a former Methodist who wanted to protect their three daughters from religion and all the things that went with it. So when I became, as the eldest daughter, a rebellious teenager, the best way I could think of to rebel was to go to church and start looking into (laughs) all that stuff they had told me I shouldn't look into. So that was the beginning of it, but it matured. In some language, the Spirit kept after me, and I had several conversions in college um, a couple of times, 
got baptized more than once, <laughs> answered more than one mm-hmm. altar call, but finally <laughs> ended up going to Yale Divinity School in the 70s as an, as an unaffiliated Christian who simply knew from the navigators that I had a deep interest in what was going on in the divine realm, but the navigators turned out not to be the crowd I wanted to go there with. So I became an Episcopalian when I was 25. I became an ordained person in the Episcopal Church when I was about 30. And here I am, I think today, maybe the 38th anniversary of my ordination, I think. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I think we'll just say that, all right, whether it's true or not. It's right around now. (laughs) So I spent more time teaching world religions than I did as a parish minister, 15 years in a parish and 20 years in a classroom. But they both, Mm. in hindsight, were perfect places for me to be at the time. So here I am, still an Episcopalian, retired from the classroom, still up to mischief in any way I can be up to it. So, and, and I think I'm completely heretical by some people's standards. So this may be beyond the pale. Who knows? Oh, I, I think you're fine there, Barbara. This, um, <laughs> I think the most, common, the most common iTunes review we get from uh, the people that don't <laughs> agree with the show is almost heretical. How about totally heretical? So, And we have a spinoff <laughs> podcast that we do for supporters called Utterly Heretical. So we're, uh, you're in good company here. Um, <laughs> we still call ourselves Christian, but probably not a lot of Christians would call us Christian. So um, but I want to come, I want to, before we get into anything else, you just mentioned something there about your parents. And um, I thought that was really fascinating because I think a lot of people, a lot of parents mm-hmm. that have experienced deconstruction or some potentially even deconstruction leading into s- losing their faith um, and trying to figure out what they're going to do next. They're in the same boat as mm-hmm. where I think what I hear you saying your parents were in was like, I want to protect my kids. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I feel this sometimes like there's, there's aspects of the religion that I grew up. I grew up Baptist. I grew up reformed. Um, and then I got into like the radical mu- movement with, with Francis Chan and planting churches and all this kind of stuff. And um, in coming out of a lot of that, I now have young children and I'm thinking, how do I, mm-hmm. you know, keep the good, take the good and take the bad and the, the old facts of life uh, TV show. But anyways, how do you keep the good <laughs> and, and, and not <laughs> expose them to some of the bad of the theology um, and the doctrines? So anyways, I, I just, I, I resonated with a lot. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners out there who would resonate with what your parents were feeling. Um, so I'm just curious if you could speak to that a little bit. What would you say to someone, to, to parents out there who are pretty hesitant to just send their kids down to Sunday school um, and pretty hesitant to maybe even be a part of a church at this point. You know, the best advice I ever heard was from a senior pastor I worked for, and he used to tell parents who asked that question, he said, send them to summer camp every summer, and they'll learn the stories and the songs, and they'll light candles and send them out on the lake on little paper boats, and they'll love each other, and they'll, you know, get up to forbidden things in the middle of the night, and they'll never forget it. And it will get into their bones, their souls, in ways that Sunday school never can. And I thought that was pretty wonderful advice, because if you think about it, what's a Sunday school classroom? Or even, forgive me, you know, an hour in church where you're told mostly to be quiet. What is that compared to an experience of nature and community and fire and water and stars and food and communion and 
and prayer, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you get at a summer camp. So I think the advice boiled down was find an immersive, full-bodied experience that your kids can fall in love with and remember later, even if they're agnostic in all the time between. Wow. That's, that's uh, I'm, my, my mind is having all sorts of crazy ideas of just ways of um, doing something like church different, just even with that word you said of a full-bodied experience and that that mm-hmm. has often not been the experience that we've had mm-hmm. um, and that there's so many other ways to find that. And that, that kind of leads into um, the next question I wanted to ask, which was um, your, so for, for anyone listening, the, the book that I first read of yours um, is Holy Envy, which is one of your most recent books. Um, but it's, it's called Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And, um, it talks about, uh, mostly about your time in the classroom teaching religion to mostly Christian students, um, is my understanding and, mm-hmm. and, um, finding things in other religions that were deeply beautiful and sometimes even, um, uh, things that you wished were more true of your own religion. Um, and so I'm curious as we talk in throughout this episode, uh, particularly about other religions, um, what was your position toward other religions, um, when you first became a Christian? So maybe for you, that's, you know, more your, your twenties and or late teen years. And has that changed over time? Because I know for most of our listeners, as I believe I mentioned, we just, the, we would have always had a very opposing stance to, um, mm-hmm. to other religions. I mean, that was absolutely, um, the, the enemy sometimes essentially demonic. I'm just, <laughs> and so the, the thought of, um, having even respect for another religion was already kind of like, all right, we're gonna, you know, this is a step forward, but the, the ability to, uh, engage and actually envy some of those elements of another religion is, is really radical and beyond just the step of even getting to the point of, um, accepting those religions as viable ways to know God. So back to the question of like, what's been the, your journey, uh, toward other religions of your own mindset toward other faiths? It started as travel, international travel and finding things to love and envy about other cultures, whether that was siesta in Italy or afternoon tea in England or, sitting meditation in Bhutan or the art that I experienced in other traditions, including calligraphy in Muslim countries that took the place of images. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what any of that was about. I just loved the beauty, the variety. And because of my upbringing, I suppose, I didn't think anybody had a monopoly on the divine because if anything, my parents Mm -hmm. substituted what some might call paganism for Christian religion, which is we camped out. We, we were on the water. We were in the water. We were learning birds. We were in the world. We were hmm. cooking beans and cans over campfires. And the power of creation and of the creator that came into me without any concepts to support it was so strong that I went into those travels open to experiencing that divine lightning wherever I went. When I was unexpectedly assigned to teach world religions as a brand new burned out Christian pastor, and then given the assignment of teaching 
the world's <laughs> great traditions, by which I mean, with the exception of Judaism, which is very small, teaching the great religions, which were huge and had worldwide followings and had lasted for thousands of years, you know, uh, including Islam. It, it's in it's the baby of the world religions mm-hmm. that we studied. But to be given that responsibility threw me immediately into my Christian teachings, which were do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So as a Christian, it became my responsibility to teach those religions in the ways that I hoped practitioners of those faiths would portray my faith if they were in my position. And so in an ironic way, it was Jesus. It was the Bible. It was my Christian teachings that called me to honor, not the teachings of every religion, mm-hmm. but, but that called me to do my best to see my neighbor as a full vessel, as someone who had a spirit and a soul and an attitude toward the divine, um, unless they avowedly said, I am atheist, you know, don't do that to me. In which case, that was a different kind of commitment. I finally learned to honor. That took longer. Hmm. Um, But it was my Christian teachings, actually, that made me a better teacher of faiths not my own. Did I get near answering your question? I lost it in the middle of my answer. Yeah, I I believe you did. And I think starting with what you're saying about traveling, um, I can totally see how that would um, slowly morph its way into um, religion. It's interesting. I think I connect with a bit of that. Um, My background is in linguistics. And um, I think learning different languages for years, long before I ever started to ask some of these questions about faith, um, just learning different languages laid a foundation for me of realizing you can't um, okay. you can't translate things perfectly, which on, mm-hmm. in a bigger picture means there's just so many ways of seeing something that simply can't be seen from someone else's eyes the same way. And, and it, um, you know, even just words in one language and ideas of God that there's no way someone who doesn't speak that language could possibly understand. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it's similar, I think, um, kind of a foundation that I maybe didn't realize was being laid. No, and it's a, it's probably the best metaphor for this because there's a reality the languages are reaching toward, right? An apple is an apple, but the way of saying mm-hmm. apple is different. And then there are other things like beauty or truth that are you know, not as clearly the same thing, but there are different ways of speaking about them. So you know, in so many cases, languages are approaching a reality they can't entirely capture. And, and then I picked up a Hindi dictionary in some used bookstore and loved finding words for which I had no reality. Like there was a word for the Mm. distance between the pommel of a elephant's saddle and the elephant's Mm. withers, you know, or, and there was a word for the mud at at a particular river's riverbank. And I thought that's incredible, Mm -hmm. which means there are words in other traditions that have no parallel in my own. So for me to go around always assuming other religions are just like mine, they just use different words, false, false, false. You know, they have, there's much we have in common and much that makes us very different. But I've, I have decided, I was going to say learned, I've decided to embrace the diversity as part of God's will. Mm. Otherwise, why would we be this way? Mm. Well, I think that transitions perfectly into, and I'm speaking of elephants. So you just mentioned the, I think, (laughs) elephant in the room for a lot of 
uh, people listening to this, um, kind of that inner voice that I was talking about before is the concept of hell that I think most uh, people who have either come out of uh, of deeply fundamentalist evangelical tradition or or who are still dealing with um, a community that does hold to those beliefs, um, you you can't really have a, a open, accepting, respectful conversation about other religions um, if if we believe that all those people are going to hell. I don't personally believe that the Bible teaches a clear picture of hell at all. And um, so I, I bring that up to, to, I think that we probably need to address that at the beginning of this conversation. And I imagine, um, first of all, I don't know what you would say your beliefs are, but also when you teach, um, I'm imagining with uh, young Christian college students that you probably run into this a lot of people saying like, how can we, how can we not just, you know, don't we need to just evangelize all these people? Like, how can we even consider the, that we wouldn't trying to convert them all? Like, how do you approach that conversation? Well, there are a lot of answers to that. One is I always said, fine, but are you open to being evangelized? Because otherwise you're not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's a central teaching. So if you're open to being Mm -hmm. evangelized by your Muslim roommate, by all means, you two go at it. Pull out your scriptures and see what you can do with each other, but don't go in it invulnerable, <laughs> you know, as, as the warrior with your sword, uh, but the other person is defenseless and you just see them as an empty vessel with nothing going on there. But a better answer is read your Bible. For heaven's sake, read your Bible. Because, you know, pluralism as we know it today did not exist then. Uh, First Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you know, largely strangers were enemies trying to steal your stuff. But even with that going on, as early as Genesis 14, Melchizedek, you know, comes out of the mists of nowhere to bring bread and wine to Abraham after he's won a great battle. He's a Canaanite. He's a Canaanite priest. He doesn't call God by the same name Abraham does, but he is the first person in Genesis to bless Abraham in the name of the God Most High. That's English translation which speeds my mind back to Genesis 12, where God made a promise to Abraham and said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And guess who the first person is who blesses Abraham? It's Melchizedek, a Canaanite Hmm. priest. So we have a stranger bearing divine gifts at the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible. Um, I won't even take you through all the other instances, but people can look up Cyrus in Isaiah 45, the mm-hmm. Persian whom Isaiah or whom God through Isaiah calls Messiah, my Messiah. Um, we can go to Naaman, who in Second Kings is healed by uh, Elisha of his leprosy. Uh, but let's speed instead to the Magi in Matthew's gospel, Persians, Zoroastrian priests in all likelihood, who show up in Bethlehem bearing gifts. And in most English translations, they kneel down and worship the child Jesus. But if you go into the Mm. languages, they honor him. And they do not stay in town to be baptized at the First Baptist Church of Bethlehem. They get back (laughs) on their camels and go back to Persia, uh, you know, presumably to become Zoroastrian priests again. So more strangers at the beginning of the Second Testament bearing divine gifts. And, and if we looked at Jesus' behavior towards Samaritans and Romans and Syrophoenicians, who in no way believed in the same God he did 
what do we see? We see healing and we see welcome and we see embrace. So I think that anyone who's worried about a Christian's relationship to those of other traditions first would do well to look up the great commandment again, which says nothing about that. And then to look at the strangers that the Bible names over and over again, you know, Hagar, the Egyptian Mm. mother um, who becomes in Muslim lore, the mother of the Muslim people. And God says, I'll bless your child. Uh, He will prosper and he'll be, he'll lead a great nation. And Ruth, the Moabite, who's listed in Matthew's gospel in the genealogy of Jesus. These are not people on the same page where religion or God is concerned. So what I make of that on Tuesdays and Thursdays is God's bigger than these distinctions. God will bless whom God will bless, and God will curse whom God will curse. And to to worry about hell is to worry about what is not my business. My business is to love God and my neighbor with everything in me and leave the rest to God. I think a lot of our listeners are are with you there. They're, they're someplace uh, either there or farther along this spectrum to being um, considering themselves somewhat outside of Christianity, at least the Christianity that used to be mm-hmm. a part of. So they'd definitely be okay with, <laughs> with statements like that, or there being multiple ways to access the divine. Um, but they sit around dinner tables, um, living rooms, um, in classrooms, in soccer practices with potentially other others who are still very much in some of the fundamentalist or um, I don't know evangelical, I guess, world that they used to be a part of, and they would they get they get this kind of the, this pushback. They get pushback of what about you know John fourteen six right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like that ends it, right? That ends the conversation. What do you say to that? Oh, well, it does not end the conversation. But first of all, arguing is just the lousiest way in the world to love your neighbor as yourself or to honor God. Lousiest way in the world. So people who want to engage in the sword fights, everybody's going to come out bloodied. Uh, My question is, why do we love the passages of Scripture that privilege our view? Why do we most love and most quote the passages that make us right? Because earlier in the Gospel of John, I'm looking it up right now, there's a verse that says, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Hmm. And I think it's chapter 12, but I should have looked it up ahead of time. Um, so why do we want John 14:6 instead of John 12, whatever that is? Why do we love the ones that make us right and the ones that make other people wrong? Uh, Why don't we love the story of Melchizedek or the Magi or Cyrus or Naaman or Ruth or Hagar or, it's just, it's curious. And I think at Mm. that point, it would be good for everyone who took a course in religion 101 to take a course in psychology 101 first to learn the ways in which we tribalize and demonize and project our shadows outward and find people to stereotype so that we feel better about ourselves. Hmm. Even when our religions teach us otherwise. Yeah. You know, I I was just thinking today about how I used to refer to when I was very much in the church, planting churches, 
you know, I was all in. Um, and I, I grew up referring to those outside the church as the world. And it just felt very, <laughs> felt very much like this natural thing. There's, there's us and then there's the world or culture often is how we, um, we talked about it. And when, and what I've realized on this side of deconstruction, this side of losing good portions of that faith that I used to have, I don't hear anyone outside the church talking about themselves as the world or worldly influences or like the culture or something like it's, it's just us. It's just life. It's just humanity. Um, and so that distinction between us and them versus, you know, the church and the world. Um, I feel like that, I don't know what, what the question is here, but I feel like that, that kind of, um, that's setting us, that's setting ourselves up for, um, <laughs> having a really tough time relating to other people from other faiths, um, or no faith at all. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious if like, what's been your, um, experience with that term, like the world, and have you heard that in, inside of churches as well? Well, this won't go straight to the point, but the world is the creation. And so what I have found is to make that distinction between church and world is to invite people to divorce themselves from the planet, from the environment, from other living creatures, for anything below them in the biological hierarchy, from people who are not like them, so that there's a huge hubris built into that that puts me at the top of the pyramid as human being, and then as Christian human being, as and as the one who has the truth. What cured me of that was taking students to um, every kind of religious center I could find in the city of Atlanta to bust up stereotypes, and where, without exception, we were welcomed with hospitality and kindness and the assurance that there was no wish to change us but only to thank us for being curious about how other people lived and loved and approached the divine. And if they got comfortable with me, because I took students back for 20 years, I would begin to hear the ways they had been injured, insulted, mm -hmm. condescended to by Christian evangelists who had assumed they were stupid, lost, demon-possessed, it just makes me want to cry <laughs> when, mm -hmm. when I think uh, when people would level with me about what it felt like to be in the grips of a Christian evangelist who was so positive of his or her rightness and so positive of their wrongness that like Gandhi, they said, I love Jesus. These Christians <laughs> mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. wrecking his case, wrecking his case. Gandhi just invited everybody to join the bucket brigade. The world's on fire. and We can't really have teams here. Let's all join the bucket brigade and see what we can do about this fire. Yeah, that was actually one of my, one of the stories that struck me deepest in your book, Holy Envy, was that moment that, it, if I remember correctly, you had just taken your students to a mosque or um, mm -hmm. a Muslim center. And as you were leaving the imam like blessed the group as, and basically blessed you all to be the best Christians that you could be. Yeah. And he went beyond that. The best Christians, he said, the best Jews, the best whatever you are, you could be. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? 
Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, it works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Yeah. And I was so struck. And I mean, this was kind of, you know, the purpose of the story in the book as well. Just so struck by the fact that I would never have said that in reverse to Mm -hmm. um, someone of another faith that the purpose of my faith was to make everyone like me, not Mm -hmm. to make everyone better at what they are. And I was just such a mindset shift. Um, So, and and I mean, it, it still is for so many people. Uh, in Holy Envy also, you refer often to this imagery. I mean, there's so many analogies that helped me shift my perspective on this. But one of the ones that you go back to often is this an, this imagery of the wa- a wave and not the ocean. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, I think in Christian tradition, I would qualify as loving mystical theology a great deal. Uh, not least of all, because the mystics of the world's great traditions tend to get along a lot better than the uh, abstract thinkers uh, or doctrinal types of those traditions. And part of it is they know they've had direct experience of the divine that exceeds language, that exceeds understanding. And so they become patient not only with themselves, who have come through an experience that changed them that they can't talk about very adequately, and it puts them in better company with people of other traditions who have had that same experience than with doctrinaire types in their own traditions. So, you know, there are interesting friendships between religions um, among those who, uh, whose temperaments, you know, are, are different. Because in every world religion I studied, you know, there are the more literal and the more literary, the more um, seven layers of meaning, the more no one literal meaning. So it's something we have in common, you know, across these great traditions. So, um, you know, back to your question, <laughs> repeat your question, Shelby. Do you remember it? <laughs> oh, great. That, uh, what was, oh, my question was about <laughs> the, that imagery of the wave in the ocean. Oh, yeah, wave in the ocean. So I believe I'm swimming in a divine ocean that exceeds my language, exceeds my understanding, but I have a direct experience of it almost every day. And it comes largely to me through creation these days. But I'm old, and I think Mm -hmm. that happens when you're old. The closer you get to becoming (laughs) dust, the better friends you make with dust. So, you know, there's a way in which it makes perfect sense. I would like to feed that tree with whatever's left of me. Um, But but I have learned or, or I have decided to accept that not only my faith at different times in my life, gosh, have I had different waves of faith. 
that have gone back mm-hmm. into the ocean of my faith. I've had so many different waves and I am no longer, you know, in those shapes or forms at all, but I do believe I'm still in the ocean. So why wouldn't I suppose that's true of a larger group of humanity? You know, that there are many of us uh, swimming in an ocean that exceeds our language and understanding, but we have, uh, you know, A, we'd like to to tread water instead of drowned. Um, and there's something hugely life-giving in what we're swimming in. Uh, but I, uh, I'm just trying to shed as much ego as I can before God snuffs that candle out altogether. I think that's interesting that you you went to that wave in ocean imagery, especially for me. I remember um, a couple of years ago when really kind of right before a lot of questions and rethinking things started to happen for me, but I was in um, Kauai on a missions trip, talk about the best place to go on a missions trip. Um, But I just remember looking out at the ocean from this island we were on and just being so struck by how huge it was and how little of it we have explored as humans. And, And I remember even as I was kind of in the peak of my, you know, evangelicalism, um, I s- just remember being struck by how could I think that I have, like that I know God, mm-hmm. if we know so little about just the ocean, much less the mm-hmm. universe, you know, outer space. And then we're going to, you know, we believe that God's of course bigger than all that. So I just, I remember the ocean was also for me this, mm-hmm. this picture of how could I possibly think that I have the quarter on truth here. And I think the distinction to make there for people who, you know, still have this inner fundamentalist voice is that we're, I think a lot of us, we're not saying that there is no truth. We're just saying that there <laughs> is maybe no one person who fully mm-hmm. gets it. Or even if we go back to the linguistics, like we were mentioning earlier, even if there is an absolute truth, there would be mm-hmm. no way to put it into words because that would automatically put it in one language that's different than someone else's. And, and, and so... I don't know. That was always helpful for me. Um, was it there is. something you were going to add there? No. Well, no, you came up with my formulation. I, I, I believe there is absolute truth and I absolutely believe I'm incapable of knowing it. <laughs> so there, that's <laughs> <Yes>. over. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, ocean, uh, night sky, you know, even the bacteria in our bodies. I mean, all these things we do not know about. I think scripture delivers a lot of people to a place of knowing. And I, and I do honor you know, the incarnation of Jesus as the most that people can know in the flesh about God. Yet, even in that story, there's the story on on the Mount of Transfiguration, when even Jesus' closest pals can't see him for the blinding light. You know, there's more to him than they can see Mm -hmm. or say. And all they could do is go to sleep because it just blows their brains. So I'm content you know, with the limits of my knowledge, maybe that's bragging. I don't know that I'm content, but I accept mm-hmm. limits to my lo- knowledge and I can back that up with scripture. You know, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways or the whole book of Job where God basically says, mm-hmm. who do you think you are? <laughs> so, yeah. but I, again, we've always got our psychology running too, which is the need to justify myself, my identity, my way of being, my sense of reality, my purpose in this world. Th- those, 
those have to be kept an eye on. And, and every time I need to keep an eye on them, I, I go to the Beatitudes when Jesus blesses those who are poor in spirit. That's a fascinating Beatitude, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think, I think at least in North America, the Christians I know want to be rich in spirit, rich, rich, rich in spirit. And yet Jesus blessed the poor in spirit. So what would it mean? I mean, I, I'm still working on that one. That's like a, a Zen puzzle for me. But I think it has something to do with surrendering my spiritual ego and hubris. And I'm still working on that. Well, speaking of scripture and speaking of justifying, this is going to feel like taking it back to where we were a few minutes ago. But I do want to ask uh, again about... The, John 14, 6, purely because I know that so many people, like that is the verse that just feels like it ends the conversation. And we <laughs> talked a little bit about it earlier. Um, but but I want to know, like if someone was pushing you hard on like this verse, it says there's no way to God except through Jesus. Like what would your direct response to that verse be? Well, my first response would be, do you think on the night before his death, he was speaking of Hindus, Buddhists, Shinto people, Native Americans, Aboriginals, uh, Islam didn't exist yet. Do you think he was speaking of religious pluralism? Or do you think he was speaking to his closest friends on the night before he died and affirming their choice to come to God through him? So I would first ask them, not in a confrontive way, do they really think he was making a statement about religious pluralism in the 21st century? The second thing I would mm-hmm. offer is a story I tell in the book by uh, Amy Jill Levine, who identifies as an mm-hmm. Orthodox Jew and teaches New Testament at Vanderbilt. And she she tells a funniest story because she gets slammed with that verse all the time. Um, and she says that in her vision, she's lined up to, to go into heaven and Peter's there and She's waiting her turn, and the guy in front of her points back to her and says, she can't come in. She's Jewish. And Jesus leans out the gate and says, no, she's fine by me. She can come in by me. So you know, her joke in English is, no one comes to the Father but by me, and she's fine by me. Let her in. It, it, and it puts Jesus back in charge of, of who comes to God by hmm. him. You know, good grief. <laughs> Why can't he be in charge of that? And, and the last thing I'd say is there's a real difference in reading the entire Christian tradition through one verse of one gospel and reading mm-hmm. the Christian tradition through every verse of every gospel, because you'll be a lot more confused if you do number two than if you do number one. Or to put it a nicer way, you'll be much more comfortable with paradox and multi-layered meaning and mystery if you will take every verse seriously. And by the way, it was John 12, 44. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. I mean, to let that one bump up against John 14, 6 is to begin to ask questions about why do I, why, why, why do I decide which the um, authoritative ones are? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's funny that as you were just saying that a moment ago, saying, you know, you're going to, you're going to be way more confused if you, read all the verses. For a second, I thought, oh, I think she misspoke. I think she must have meant to say that. But then I realized, oh, no, you're actually saying that being confused is the better option. Because <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's like the, the, it's kind of this holy uncertainty and like this ability to just hold 
the fact that there's a lot of a lot of verses that say a lot of things and we don't understand what they all mean. No. And doesn't that put you in a it puts you in a better position to practice faith than certainty does? Mm-hmm. And you know, why did why did the early church give us four gospels that don't agree? Jesus says different things on the cross, you know. There are different people showing up. There's one angel, there's two angels, they're you know, dressed like this, they do this, they do that. I think the early church embraced multiple testimony in a way that modern day Christians become impatient with and want clarity and certainty. Guess why? Because I want to go to heaven and not to hell. But there's just... Um, mm-hmm. I'm not diminishing that because I have known sincere, sincere Christians who weep at at their idea of the lostness of other people because of what they've chosen to believe. It's just difficult for me to believe in humans who are more loving and gracious than that and to believe that God is less loving and gracious than that. No, I've, I've told this story, I think, on the podcast before or maybe on our um, podcast for patrons. But I, I mean, I was definitely that Christian that you're saying who's weeping over it. I remember probably when I was 16 or 17, I just laying on the floor of the office in my my house with my mom and my sister. And I just was laying there just sobbing because I believed so deeply in hell and then that people needed to believe in Jesus, you know, in all the ways that I thought that they had to believe. Like I, I, I believed it all. And it was just, it struck me so hard that like every moment people were dying and that, you know, in my mind, they were going to eternal conscious torment. And, and I just, I think when I think back on that, I'm like, that really was the only appropriate reaction to mm-hmm. really believing that. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that that was the moment where I probably most genuinely <laughs> was um, actually responding to that belief. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know how I got up off the floor still believing that, but here I am today. And um, and I so resonate with what you're saying of how, how could it be that people could be more, more loving. And actually there was a, a, a portion of your book that I think told a story, uh, or at least you were talking about, I think it was Judaism and, and Islam and how in their traditions, God just forgives and there's no, there's no need for, you know, the sacrifice through Jesus that you have to believe through him, that they just confess mm-hmm. their sins to him and God forgives them. And kind of this mm-hmm. thought of, oh yeah, why, why couldn't it just be that way? Um, <laughs> it's one of the dangers of interreligious dialogue. When you get asked a question, you can't answer like, would you explain the Trinity to me one more time? Cause one doesn't seem like three to me. <laughs> and you go, <laughs> yeah. oh, could I get back to you on that? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, isn't this what Rob Bell got in trouble for? I don't know him well, and I don't know that I've read that book, but it seems to me like a number of people have gotten in trouble for suggesting that an all-merciful God who wills the salvation of every human being, I mean, I've read my C.S. Lewis as well as anyone, but um, would be incapable of forgiving someone who made a bad choice. Hmm. Yeah. I, anyway, uh, first of all, I don't want to make it sound at all like this was an easy place for me to land. It, it is a risky place to land, and it is a, a an adult decision to accept the risks of um, challenging 
tearing down, you used the word deconstructing, my whole idea of divine reality and divine transactionalism and, mm-hmm. and um, allowing a lot more unknowing in instead. You know, nobody mm-hmm. listening to this is going to be particularly interested in distinctions between um, negative theology you know, and, and another kind. But negative theology speaks often of what God is not. God is not an anatomically correct male. You know, God is not white. Uh, God is not only in, in one place at one time, you know, that there are ways in which negative theology is silent, is goes as far as it can with language, and then is silent. And it's not opposite to the other kind, which is making statements about what God is. The two spin. I mean, they depend on each other. They make each other run. But I don't think that negative theology, or what I sometimes call the lunar tradition in Christianity gets nearly as much airtime because it's not, it doesn't feel as safe. It doesn't feel secure. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. put me on steady, confident ground that I'm going to heaven and everybody who matters will be there too. Well, there are a couple more things I really want to um, hear about um, as we're get close to wrapping this up. Um, first of all, I want to talk about just what it means for to you to be a Christian. And uh, I know Nate mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we call ourselves Christians, but there are probably a lot of Christians who wouldn't call us Christian. And we've just come up so many times over and over against this idea of, you know, how do you define Christian and what counts as Christian? And um, so, first of all, just asking, you know, what that means to you. And, and then, you know, if we I think this is a question that'd be on a lot of people's minds is if, um, if God can be known and accessed through other religions and if we're not trying to, you know, escape from hell through Jesus, then, you know, why be a Christian? Why have you chosen to be a Christian? <laughs> Isn't that sad? I, I remember somebody said, I mean, if I'm not here for you to tell me why I'm right, why am I here? <laughs> and I thought that is the worst reason I can think of to be here is to be sure you're right. There, you know, there's a wonderful story. Mm. It, it actually shows up in a lot of traditions, but about a woman who walked through the streets of her town at night with a bucket of water in one hand and a bucket of coals in the other, praying to God and saying, let me with this water put out the fires of hell. And with this, this, this bucket of coals, let me burn up the images of heaven so that I love thee for you alone. I love you for you alone and not out of my fear of punishment or my want of reward. That's unconditional love. You know, so I, I, I hang on to that. I am Christian. I sought it. I found it in many forms before I found a form I could live with. And it is one, the Episcopal tradition that honors scripture, but also honors tradition, everything that's happened since the fourth century to now in Christian community mm-hmm. and and human reason and experience. So um, I stayed Christian because of the wonderful broad way that allowed me to question and talk to other people and reason, compare experience, and not simply to be bound to one a one-legged stool, but I had a three-legged. Um, I, I fell in love with the idea of God made flesh, though I my ideas about what that means have changed. The idea that if the if if God deigns to take on flesh, 
and God blesses creation as good, God is in this world in a way that life-denying forms of Christianity don't get. It's all about finding the escape tube from here, from the world, right? Mm. Let's get out of the world and go straight to heaven. So incarnation in frail form, that matter matters to God, and that Jesus is such a puzzling character. Every time anyone tells me he's all about love, I just want to sit him down and walk him through the Bible because there's some places he is so horrible. I wish I could take the pages out. He's so mean, you know, or so awful to people. He's not a simple character, but in hymns and Sunday school lessons, he gets flattened out and cookie cuttered in ways that make him much easier to follow. He is a difficult person. If you want to be my disciple, you got to hate your mother and your father. You know, you got <laughs> what? I, I showed that passage wow. to some students who said, no, that's not in there. I said, oh, it is. <laughs> it is. Wow. Let's look it up. <laughs> but they had never, ever, of course, heard that in church. But I, I, I guess in some ways, I love the whole of my tradition, and it does not give me a safe place to stand. It gives me a place to have faith beyond my understanding in, in what I have fallen in love with in the Christian way. But to tell you the truth, good grief, I came out of a unchurched family. And these days I might as well, I might, I might've wandered into a, a, a meditation center. I might've, who knows these days, my Christian students were mm-hmm. open, open, open. They just were not getting p- permission to be open from their families who were scared to death. I don't know what scared to death for them to stray from the path. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish that. I don't, I don't. But I also think that certainty and safety don't match up with the life of Jesus as I read it. Mm. It's a life of risk unto death, a life of laying down your life for your friends. Mm. It's a, it's a risky life. Even at the moment of your death to wonder if you've been abandoned, that's heavy duty faith. So wow. it's, it, it's a fur piece from certainty and safety. I, I mean, it's really beautiful to hear you saying some of these things. I think that, at least for me, and I think a lot of our listeners who have um, you know, struggled over, I don't feel like I believe a lot of this anymore. And, and yet we so have so deeply loved Mm-hmm. Jesus and these scriptures and don't we, like we don't want to just throw these out. We don't want to just walk away and yet there's so much we feel like we can't hold on to. So to hear you like I mean I just multiple times throughout this conversation have been so inspired to think about something a different way and so like tears have come to my eyes many times already of just feeling mm-hmm. like I, you're almost giving me permission to see the beauty in this again mm-hmm. and and to be able to see the beauty in it without needing to um, needing to push everyone else away and all mm-hmm. of the other faiths and all of the other people. Um, so, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. You, you talk about, you know, being nourished by Christianity and that's the one that nourished you. And so that's, that's why you have been a Christian. I know there's uh, references to that in the book. And um, I think what, what I've experienced through this show, doing this show for, I mean, She's almost like five years now. Um, and just the, I mean, thousands at this point of people that have reached out to share their experience um, with church or with faith and uh, losing 
some portion of that. Some have completely lost it. Some have lost portions of it. You know, um, I think uh, there's this consistent, there's like, a, there's a thread through all of it of aspects of the faith that they used, that they used to believe no longer nourishes them. Mm-hmm. And I guess to, to those on the far, farther end of the spectrum where they maybe have not been nourished by Christianity for a long time, just throwing this out there, <laughs> what would you say to someone who's who wants to explore being nourished by another religion? You know, I'm of two. I mean, first of all, I'd say go. I mean, I am probably Pentecostal now, an Episcopal Pentecostal. Does that go together? I don't think so. <laughs> but I'm I'm Pentecostal in in terms of my my faith in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You know, if I'm loyal to the Bible, Jesus said, I'm leaving now, but an advocate is on the way who will show you things, you know, you haven't seen before and you'll do more than you ever did. So I I think the urge to find deeper spirit and deeper experience is to be honored. I would love for people who explore to have a companion and not to do that alone because chances are they will be have as many questions as you know in the new place they go as they did about the old place especially if they spend as much time looking into the teachings and getting to know right you know the new tradition which is going to have human beings in it so it's going to have as much yeah. friction and disagreement and uncertainty as the old tradition but by all means go i just hope you know that that uh, there's room uh, to keep to keep the spirit fresh and to to find a small circle of people who can tell you you're not crazy and to be interested in what you discovered and to hold you when you cry and to say hmm. what do we try next let's go, let's go visit somewhere else next and you know if you decide to to turn back and reinvent you know to do that with courage. I, I have a very long speech, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But but I um, my my only hesitation, and this shows my age, because I know many people half my age who have no concern about this at all. But to devote yourself to a tradition is to go deep and and to to travel between traditions is to not have time to go very deep in any one of them. So that's my old fashioned reservation against um a lot of peregrination, but I think peregrination itself, which means to fly like a peregrine. I mean, pick up speed, see the world, go look, go ask, go explore. Um, I believe God's there. I believe the spirit's there. I believe Jesus is there. They don't Hmm. check, check out on you. Do they, do they sign your card and say, see you when you get back? I think they go with us. I hope they go with us (laughs) wherever we go. Hmm. It reminds me of, John, a verse in John three, um, that says the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with the spirit. I can't remember the sentence, but just no, you did it. That. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, which means not yes. knowing is true of everyone born of the spirit. Mm-hmm. But we never hear that lesson, but go ahead. What, 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 why does it make you think of that? That's a beautiful story. Yeah, I think it's my favorite verse in the Bible right now, <laughs> um, because uh, it just partially because it feels so confusing. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon taught on that verse, and I mean, I'm not surprised because it essentially says 
you don't, you don't know. know what's going on and you don't have any control over it. You can't see it. Mm-hmm. It's the wind will do whatever it wants. That's That's, right. That doesn't fit in a systematic theology very well. <laughs> and, uh, so, but it's, hmm. it's beautiful. Um, but um, one, maybe the last thing that I want to um, get into uh, just as we we're talking about, you know, peregrination, that was a great word to use there. Mm. Of, of these different faiths, and you've spent a lot of time learning and visiting, um, you know, decades of uh, connecting with people of other religions, and 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 to the point where, of course, you write this book called Holy Envy mm-hmm. um, about different elements of other religions that you found um, deeply beautiful and challenging, and and so I would love to know just what is maybe your highlight reel, like some things that you've <laughs> learned or gleaned from other religions that you want to share and how that's maybe challenged some of your own beliefs or how that has been incorporated into your own personal daily life or, or not, but yeah, take it however you want. Like what are just the things you're like, Oh, I wish you knew this about Islam or about Buddhism or about Hinduism or, um, ready, go. Oh gosh. Can we have the whole hour back now? (laughs) Um, the short answer is (laughs) the short answer is, as a collective answer. And that is, first of all, I did vet the places we went. So I looked hard for places who welcomed students and welcomed people who didn't know how to Mm -hmm. behave or what to say or what not to say, or when to take shoes off. So that meant that over and over again, I took clueless students into places where they were welcomed like perfect guests, you know, where, where they were offered the best seats and, and given the best food. And that blew me away until I realized we were coming from the dominant religious tradition in the United States to visit um, minority communities who were used to being stereotyped and um, maligned, lied about, evangelized, and they were just so grateful we were there. So my best reel includes in every situation being welcomed so warmly and then being assured that we were being welcomed exactly as we were. And there was no desire, you know, for us to be other than what we were, which surprised many, many students who went Mm -hmm. armed to not be converted. And then nobody tried to convert them. And it was like Tai Chi. They just (laughs) spun around. They didn't know what to do with the excess energy (laughs) because they didn't have anybody to oppose. Uh, But I think from, you know, from Judaism, I love everything from the idea of sacred debate, that scripture is, is, a sacred text to be revered and debated endlessly about what it means and what it means in this situation, that situation, Mm -hmm. this civilization, that civilization, this century, that century. But it's never about coming to perfect agreement. It's about the sacred debate uh, that, again, doesn't deliver certainty or security. It delivers engaging a live dialogue. I envy the Sabbath in Judaism, the idea that people could stop for 24 hours hours a a week and not try to earn their way Mm -hmm. into God's love. Um, In Islam, I so envied the embodied prayer of the community on Fridays when they stood toe to toe. I, a Christian who go often to the back pew of a church and sit by myself, Mm. you know, if you go into Friday prayers at a mosque, you're going to go toe to toe with other believers and you, you pray as a people to God. It's not a, individual prayer. It's a communal prayer. And it happens five, five times a day, you know, for those who are observant. Ramadan, you know, fasting for a month 
and enduring quite a bit of hardship and fellowship during that month sets you apart from the dominant culture in a real noticeable way, especially at Piedmont College if you're an athlete and you're playing through the summer when Ramadan is in a summer month and you're not drinking or eating and your fellow athletes say, how is he doing that? Uh, but it's a great testament to faith. The, the, the Buddhists get a lot of credit in my mind, just for, with a notable exception of Sri Lanka, being on the whole people who are devoted to, to peace, uh, to um, nonviolence, and, and who can sit in silence longer with more focus than, than most people I know, and who exercise compassion, not just for other human beings, much less just other Buddhists, but for all sentient beings, you know, who are at their heart, um, not meat eaters, because that creature enjoys being as alive as much as you do. What have I left out? Hinduism, the recognition that there are many, many paths to the divine that depend a great deal on the temperament of the seeker, and that there is not one paved road. There are many, many paths to the divine, and um, they are honorable uh, to the people on them. And what I love about Christianity, I already said, matter matters to God. Islam and Judaism share that too. But the mm -hmm. idea that, um, that we in our flesh are loved and that even this claim of resurrection of the body is a remarkable absurd claim, but it means that matter matters to God even after we leave this plane. I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Native Americans and Buddhists who honor um, living lineages. You know, you say to a Native American, give me a good book on your tradition. They'll say, well, we have a sweat lodge tonight. Would you like to come? In other words, mm -hmm. you can't read a book, bro. You got to come. <laughs> you got to come say the yeah. prayers. You got to come be hot with us and sing with us. And then you tell us what it's about. So lot, lots to envy and, and lots to make me a better Christian. Lots to call me to account as a Christian and how I embody my faith and how I do my best to, to evade stereotypes. Um, so bottom line, there's as much diversity in every one of those that I just went through as there is in my tradition. So to understand that religion's kind of not a thing, but people who follow a religion are definitely something. So it's the people I want to pay attention to and not something written down on a creed on a wall. I want to see how it takes shape in a body because I'm a Christian and that's what matters to me. How can you love God if you don't love your brother or sister? I think it says that in the Bible, right? That's in the Bible. <laughs> It does. Yeah, it's it's so funny how listening to you say that, you know, there are how about Hinduism and how there are many paths to God. And, and you know, as I've said a couple times, like I have that still have that voice in the back of my head that's like, no, that's that's the you know, that's everything I was taught it yeah. can't be true. Like I was this specifically taught to disregard that picture of there being multiple paths up like the idea of a mountain and there's many ways. Like, and you know, with the, again, that verse, I know yeah, I'm the only yeah. way, but I remember actually, um, there was another analogy or two analogies in, um, in the book, Holy Envy, um, one about the solar system and another about rivers that both were just such helpful ways for me of reorienting 
that perspective. Um, and the ones, so the, the Copernican revolution, essentially that, you know, rather than seeing, um, rather than seeing Christianity as the center of, um, the religious universe, but to see God as the center and as Christi- Christianity as one of the planets that orbits it mm-hmm. and that there may be other planets that orbit God as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other analogy being the rivers in that, you know, there are, there are these rivers all over the world, like the, the Jordan, or, I mean, I'll just, I don't, there's the Ganges or, I mean, there's the mm-hmm. Amazon, there's different mm-hmm. the rivers all over the world that never, never connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of them evaporate into the clouds mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and up there it's all one mm-hmm. and, and water as a whole. Anyway, so those are just two, I thought I would share, I mean, you know them, but li- for yeah. listeners that are still, you know, struggling to fully accept this idea of their potentially of there being multiple ways. I mean, like Nate said, I think that most of our listeners are um, open to that idea, but I think mm-hmm. there's still this like subconscious fear and guilt mm-hmm. over going there because we've been so taught not mm-hmm. to do this, that this is like dangerous and, and heretical, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to share some of those analogies to, to try and assuage that fear a bit. And, and I think what you've shared about um, pieces of scripture and pieces of the Bible and how that can actually also open up these doors mm-hmm. of, of allowing other, other mm-hmm. people and other religions and other strangers of other faiths. Um, I think that's also been incredibly helpful. So I'm very grateful for what you've shared here today. Thank you. And, and to bring it home, which is where it needs to come. I mean, in the Christian way, there are Catholics, Baptists, Lutherans, Orthodox Christians, mm-hmm. Um, the, those are many paths. <laughs> those are many Christian paths. So is there one Christian path? And if there is, then we need to kick a bunch of those people out. And then let's just go to our own congregations if we're in them. D- is everybody in that congregation on the same path? If they're not, don't we need to kick them out? The ones that aren't. And who gets to determine which path is the right one? Yeah. I mean, the Gospel Coalition is trying, but um, <laughs> just couldn't, couldn't help but get that joke in there. Okay. Well, Barbara, I really appreciate your time and um, this picture that you painted um, to give, to give. I guess I, I would say, it, like, give give Christianity some more hope, more hope for Christianity, because um, there is maybe a more open-handed way to hold the faith that, um, yeah, doesn't draw these really thick lines um, mm-hmm. between Christianity and others. So I love that. It's really beautiful. And um, yeah, thanks again for this time. I appreciate it. I appreciate both of you. And the next time we speak, I'm going to talk to each of you and you get to talk for an hour. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute honor to you um, have been one of the most influential authors for me. You, uh, along with Rachel Held Evans, have been the two who not just what you've said, but the the way that you talk about these things and the 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 beauty and the optimism and the hope that you see um, in Christianity and in the world has um, been inspiring to me. And um, so it's it's been. I mean, I feel like I'm you know, getting to talk to one of my favorite celebrities right now. And it's been just a, an absolute privilege. So thank you. Bless you both. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for spending time with us today, friends. As always, if you want to become a patron of the show and get our second podcast called Utterly Heretical, we, we dive into so many more topics there. We share more stories. We're more open and honest, I guess, about our 
our past and our background and um, ministry days and things like that. We'd love to have you a part of that. You're also going to get access to our private Facebook group where you're free to ask questions, ask questions of us, of other listeners of the show. It's very active and uh, it's a real fun place to get to connect with all of you. You'll get all that for just $5 a month and you can sign up at almostheretical.com. All right, we'll catch you next time.